all the way from Waukee. I find in Iowa, or at least in the Des Moines area, people refer, like, if you have to go to Ames from Waukee, people say, oh, I have to drive all the way out to Ames. I'm like, it's only like 15 minutes away. You don't even leave the interstate. I don't know. And even like or going to downtown from Waukee, people in Waukee are like, oh, it's all the way downtown. It literally takes 15 minutes on I-80 to get to downtown. I don't know. Maybe it's just economies of scale. So it's good to be with you all this morning. Thank you for the invitation to, uh, to come and to preach. Uh, I hail originally from Ohio, uh, in between Dayton and Cincinnati. Anybody from Ohio in the room? Nobody? Shoot, all right. Uh, and then I spent some time in Michigan after that, uh, in Grand Rapids, and then in Holland, Michigan, and then I've been out here for the last four years as uh, assistant pastor at Westview Church in Waukee. Um, now, this may be a dumb question, but when I'm a guest preacher at places, I do like, just as a get-to-know-you deal, I like to hear what college teams you like to root for. <laughs> but <laughs> we're, we're kind of in aim, so I, well, I'll take the poll anyways. Do we have any Iowa State basketball fans in the room? <laughs> yeah. Is anyone not an Iowa State fan here? <laughs> There's like, I just saw one very sheepish hand back there. Who, who's your team? Kansas. Kansas. Oh. <laughs> this, is, this is the one time that you can say Kansas and people feel bad for you this time. <laughs> and what's your team? I'm an Iowa grad. An Iowa grad, okay. Yeah, Hawkeyes are all right too. I'm from Ohio, but I'm actually a Kentucky Wildcats fan. <laughs> wow. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of like being a Kansas fan or a Duke fan. I get it. If I wasn't a Kentucky fan, I'd have the same reaction. Like, oh, that, that program is the worst. So uh, all of my family from a few generations back hails from Kentucky. And so it sort of came up across the Ohio River with my family. So to this day, we're still Wildcats fans. So sorry about that. <laughs> um, our scripture passage today uh, is Exodus 14, verses 1 to 14. Uh, and if you're looking that up in a physical copy of Scripture, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Um, Lent, we are in the midst of the season of Lent right now. I don't know uh, how familiar you all are with that, but Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter. And it's a time of preparation in which we... Uh, reflect on ourselves, on our brokenness, on our mortality, and we do so so that when Easter comes, we can really celebrate the grace that we have been given in Jesus. Because only, it's only by understanding our brokenness and our mortality, the fact that we're going to die, that we can really grasp just how great God's grace is in giving us Jesus and his life, and his death, and his resurrection. And so our passage this morning, it is uh, the Israelites have just been released from Egypt, and they are caught in between Pharaoh and the Red Sea. And so uh, in the Bible, uh, this is called the wilderness. Anytime the Bible refers to the desert, and sometimes they, well, sorry, sometimes the Bible uses the word wilderness, but then also sometimes, like in our story today, it talks about going out in the desert. Anytime the Bible's talking about that, the, the wilderness is a place 
where people are refined and prepared for a deeper faith, which is sort of the theme of Lent. And so we, our passage this morning, it's the Israelites out in the wilderness in the face of danger, but God is preparing them for a deeper faith. Sort of like what Emily was just saying before that song. And those times of trial, you find out what foundation you are set on. And so I want you to ask yourself this question as we read uh, this morning's passage. Uh, ask yourself, have you ever felt abandoned in the wilderness before? Have you ever felt abandoned in the wilderness before? That's the question I want you to ask yourselves as we read. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for your word and for the way that you speak through it to us uh, today, just as you did thousands of years ago when it was written. And so God, we ask that your spirit would be present here with us this morning. Fill this place. Open up our hearts to hear what you are saying. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihaharoth between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they encamped by the sea near Pihaharoth, opposite Baal. Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to desert that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Our story this morning, it picks up in the moments right after Israel had left 
the land of Egypt and headed out on their exodus journey to the promised land. But as Israel begins their trek out into the wilderness, they encounter their first of many hardships. Pharaoh changes his mind and decides that he doesn't want to let the people go. So Pharaoh and his army, they, they take off in this race to catch up to Israel out in the desert. And when the Israelites catch wind that Pharaoh is in hot pursuit, they let out this cry of desperation. God had promised deliverance to the Israelites, but instead, where did he send them? He sent them out to the desert to die. To be honest, it seems like uh, Israel has a legitimate complaint against God because they're staring down two deadly options. First, Israel could be slaughtered by Pharaoh's army as they come up behind them, or they could drown in the Red Sea. Pretty good options, I guess. And so it's in the face of this imminent death that Israel cries out to God in verse 11, and, and they're basically asking, did you bring us out here to die because Egypt ran out of graves? That cry from the Israelites, it has all the weight of death to it. And it's one that I'm guessing that we're familiar with in some way because there's not a person in this room, now I don't know you all that well, but by the fact that you're humans, I think I can say this, there's not a person in this room who hasn't been in a wilderness place in your life. And in fact, some of you, I'm guessing, feel like you're there right now. A wilderness place where you ask questions like, why does God seem so distant? Or why do bad things keep happening? Or is God even present in my life at all? As Christians, we know that we're supposed to be joyful, but we also feel the burden and the pain of being in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness, it was a literal place of despair for the Israelites. They were in an actual wilderness desert. But for us, you know, it's, it's not so much an actual desert as it is any point in life where we feel like throwing up our hands in the air and saying, I give up. Chuck DeGroat, who was one of my professors in seminary, he puts it this way. Can we get that quote on the screen? This is the way he describes being in the wilderness place in life. This is wilderness darkness. It's when the bottom falls out. It's when everything you knew to be true is called into question. It's when the answers provide no comfort. Security is stripped and your sense of justice is offended. That's the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is painful. For everyone who's been there, you know that it's not a fun place to be. But the wilderness isn't without purpose. And so I'm going to illustrate this with a, with a personal example. And just humor me for a minute because you need to put on your imagination caps for this one. Can we do that? I know spring break just started, but we need to put on our imagination caps because even though... Someone told me it snowed here last night a little bit. That is unbelievable. All right. So even though it's kind of miserable out there, this, this illustration, uh, uh, this passage made me think of the hottest summer I have ever experienced. Now, it might be hard to imagine summer at this point, but uh, 
when I was, I think it was when I was a sophomore in high school or something like that, Ohio, Southwest Ohio, had a four-day span where every day it was about 104 degrees. Now, you all are Iowans, and from being here for a few years, I know that you understand what humidity is, and it's miserable. And so in Southwest Ohio, it's the same deal. Hot, humid, miserable summers. So this week in August, it's like 104 degrees, but it felt more like 111 to 115 degrees. Now, that would have been fine because we have modern air conditioning systems, so as long as you're inside, it's all good. But that week was the first week of soccer practice. And, and my coach decided that every day we were sticking to our schedule and we had practice at 5 p.m. at the hottest part of the hottest week that Ohio had arguably ever experienced. Looking back, I'm just lucky that no one collapsed from heat exhaustion because that would have been a problem. But uh, so every day we went to practice and, uh, and I was goalkeeper as well. So after a half hour of unbelievably painful conditioning, then I would proceed to dive and throw myself on the hot, dry, dusty ground. And looking back, I wonder, why in the world did I ever do that? It's one of those things that, you know, you, once you hit, you know, 30, you start to think, I'm not as young as I used to be, because you couldn't pay me to do this now. So at the end of practice, though, this is what I remembered from it, was that the whole experience was so hot, miserable, exhausting. If I had ever experienced a desert wilderness, that week was the closest I had got to it. And what I remember so keenly, though, was at the end of that practice, I would grab my one-gallon water jug, and you would have thought that thing was a lifeline, because I would drain it like that. Never before had I been so acutely aware of my own need for water as those days in August. Water is something that we take for granted. It's a substance that keeps us alive every day. It's, it hydrates us. We shower in it. We clean with it. Water is so essential for us. But it wasn't until I was deprived of it for 90 minutes and 104 misery that I realized just how much I depended on it and how much I needed water. You know what I didn't want at the end of those practices? I did not want Mountain Dew. I did not want coffee. I didn't want any alcoholic beverages. I didn't want tea. I didn't want energy drinks. I only wanted water. I didn't want any cheap substitutes because I had spent so much time outside that water was the only thing that was going to satisfy. In fact, everything else just kind of sounded nasty or like it would even be harmful. The wilderness it has a similar effect on the Israelites. Out in the desert, Israel learns that their dependence was on God and on God alone. The wilderness uh, taught Israel that they needed to give up all of the cheap substitutes that they held onto in place of God. You might even call those idols. I would guess that would be our Christian term for that. But I sort of like that term, cheap substitutes, because that's what they are. Anybody have any cheap substitutes in your life that you hold on to instead of God? 
as soon as the Israelites got to the wilderness, they felt Pharaoh breathing down their neck. And so they cry out in verse 12, and they say, they say something remarkable in verse 12. They say, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. God is trying to lead his people to freedom, but God's people are saying, nah, we're good. We'll take the bondage back in Egypt. That seems a lot better than dying out here. That is a cheap substitute. And it may seem ridiculous, but all of us make similar mistakes every day, taking things that are actually harmful for us instead of embracing God and what he desires for us. And so God, he, uh, he takes Israel out into the wilderness and he strips them of this cheap substitute that they're holding on to, slavery in Egypt. Who wants that? And so at the Red Sea, as you guys know the story, God does save his people at the Red Sea. He parts the waters and they pass through and then he collapses the waters back on the Egyptians. So God, he saves his people that day. And they learned that day that, okay, we don't have to be enslaved to the Egyptians anymore. God set that cheap substitute aside and taught them that they need to depend on him alone. But then it keeps going from there because Israel doesn't learn overnight. And in fact, God keeps Israel out in the wilderness for 40 years. And it's this whole process of they, they're holding on to one idol, one cheap substitute for God, and then God strips that one away from them. And then Israel latches on to something else, and then God strips that one away from them. And this process repeats over and over and over again. And at some points, if you read the whole, books, uh, the whole book of Exodus, it seems kind of comical. It's like, what is wrong with these people? Don't they get it? Like, you're supposed to trust God. And then I think about the seemingly infinite number of cheap substitutes that I hold on to. And my guess is you as well. We can try to replace God with all kinds of things. Bad things, but we can also try to uh, replace God even with good things. Like working out or job promotions or following the rules or raising children. There's so many options we have before us of what we can put our trust in apart from God. And I'm sure each of you could add your own items to the list of what those things are that you hold on to. And so here's the deal, though. When we spend time wandering through wilderness places, places that are miserable, places that hurt, places that we would rather not be in, those are places where God is refining us. And he's stripping away all those cheap substitutes one by one. Because when we finally get to the end of all those things that we hold on to, we have nothing. And when we finally hit that point of desperation of seemingly being lost out in the wilderness, then for the first time, we can finally look to Jesus and see that he truly is our only hope and that he is our savior. Apart from the life 
and the death and the resurrection of Jesus were nothing. When life is going well, we can begin to think that we're the masters of our own ship and that we command our own destiny. But the wilderness places, those places we'd rather not be, those are the good places because those are the places that are painful reminders that our hope is in God alone. Time spent in the wilderness, whether it's a few weeks, a few years, for some of you it might even felt like a few decades. It's time in which God is still working in us and refining us. Now, uh, God doesn't abandon us out in the desert. He is there with us and he is working through it in us. And to see more of that, I want to highlight another scripture passage for us this morning. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, uh, we read this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Isn't that an incredible picture, by the way? Jesus is led into the desert for a 40-day one-on-one session with Satan. I mean, that's a particular kind of misery out in the wilderness. But the most remarkable thing about this verse is that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We've all spent time in the wilderness and it's, again, it's that time when we're asking, is God even doing anything in my life? And the answer is yes. Somehow, even though it doesn't make sense, he is. God led Israel out into the desert. God, through his spirit, he led Jesus into the desert. And so we can only assume by extension that God, at some point, is going to lead us out into the desert as well. And he's going to be there with us. You can't run from the wilderness. You can't run from it any more than Jesus did. But what you can do is accept the work of transformation that God wants to do in your life through it. Now, it won't feel good. I'll be honest, it'll hurt. It'll be excruciatingly painful sometimes. But the one who leads us out into the wilderness does so with a purpose. And he wants what's best for us. And he wants to see us let go of all of our idols, let go of all those cheap substitutes that we hold on to. So as we wrap up here, I want to I uh, display that quote one more time, if we could. Wilderness darkness. It's when the bottom falls out. It's when everything you knew to be true is called into question. It's when the answers provide no comfort. Security is stripped. Your sense of justice is offended. It's when we're at this place where it feels like the bottom falls out that we can finally learn that being successful in life, it doesn't really have much to do at all 
with having a good house, a good family, a good health, a good job, or good finances. True success is to know God and to live in his ways in this world. This is only experienced when our personal kingdoms crumble away amidst the pain and the confusion and the seeming abandonment of these wilderness places in our life. So renew, as we, as we wrap up the sermon, I do want to end with a word of hope. I know this has been a heavy sermon, which is fitting for the season of Lent, but there's a lot of grace in this passage as well. Remember, God is doing something good to the Israelites in this passage. He is saving them. He is stripping away their idols. And that's what he's doing with us as well. There's a lot of grace there. God could just leave us how we are, but he's not satisfied with that. And like he did with the people of Israel, God is walking the wilderness road with us. Jesus himself spent time in the wilderness, and that means we can't possibly go into any wilderness place in our life where Jesus himself has not already been. He will sustain you, and he will teach you that he is your only hope in life and in death. And the call to us is the same call that God made to the Israelites in verse 14, that very last verse of our passage. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. We can be still and we can rest because God is the one who is at work within us in every moment of our lives. And that's good news. Amen? Pray with me.